from Alabama to Arizona, Kentucky to Nebraska, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the National Assessment of Educational Progress has issued its 2022 report, and the damage done to students from COVID-19 restrictions is severe. Aaron Wyth of the Freedom Foundation is here to discuss why. There was no red wave, but the GOP still has a chance to control both houses of Congress. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has sifted through the election results and has the real story. If you live in Massachusetts and you earn more than a million dollars per year, you're going to be paying a higher percentage of your income in taxes. Eric Bame of Reason Magazine has details. And it has been 60 years since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Once again, the world faces a nuclear threat from Russia. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The nation's report card is out, and it shows a historic decline in educational achievement resulting from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. With a look at who and why those restrictions have done such damage, we turn to Aaron Wyth. He is chief executive officer of the Freedom Foundation. Aaron, welcome to American Radio Journal. Aaron, we're going to talk here about the causes and effects of what's happened to our school children across the country. But the nation's report card has been issued. Tell us a bit about who put the report card together and what it found. The report card showed basically that school kids are completely failing. It, it showed to, in a staggering numbers that our kids have fell behind over 20 years in terms of reading, writing, and math. And this, this isn't a surprise to us at the Freedom Foundation because we've known that this has been happening. When you shut down schools, when you make kids wear masks, when you do this whole remote learning thing, all it's going to do is affect the kids' education and, of course, their mental health as well. So what we've seen is what we expected to see is that our kids' reading, writing, math scores are down significantly. And this is the fault of the teachers' unions, ultimately. Teachers' unions, like the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association, they were the ones advocating to ensure that these kids were kept out of schools, despite what we know now, which we knew back then, was that that would play a significant role on their education and mental health. How badly have our students fallen behind here, Aaron? 20 years. That's how far we've turned back the clock over 20 years. That's what the report card shows. It's estimated that this is going to make a real difference in terms of living wages. Estimates show that it's billions of dollars that's going to be uh, that's going to cost these ki- these kids when they turn adults when they go into the workforce and become employees. That it's going to cost their wages significantly. I mean, what we're really talking about here is what the teachers unions have done to them. And we're not going to be measuring this just for one year. We're going to be measuring this for decades to come, what the teachers' unions have done. Let's expand a bit upon this because we're now hopefully moving out of the COVID pandemic era. But just looking back over the last two years, tell us a little bit more about what the teachers' unions did and their role in keeping our school children out of school. What was interesting is that when COVID kind of started, I think the whole country had the same response, which was to shut down schools and to 
stay home and the rest. I think at that time, uh, really nobody knew what COVID was or how bad it could have really been. But after a, a few weeks and a month, I'd say, we really got the idea that this wasn't going to be a massive killer. And we certainly knew that it wasn't going to affect our children. That was obvious really from the start. So what happened was in conservative areas, states, cities, and the likes, we started to see kids go back into school. But in liberal cities and in liberal states, we saw governors continue the shutdown of schools. We saw uh, school districts uh, make sure that these kids were not in school. And that was at the behest of the teachers' unions. They own the politicians, and therefore they were able to keep these schools closed and uh, fulfill their agenda, uh, ultimately. So what we really saw is that there was this, not only was there a decrease in our kids' education standards, but that was particularly noticeable in big cities where the teachers' unions had been in control. And that's where we're going to see a big, stark difference between uh, the kids coming out of those schools. Interestingly, some of these unions and union leaders now are trying to evade that responsibility and sort of rewrite history. Are you seeing that? (laughs) Randy Weingarten is the president of the American Federation of Teachers. And uh, I tell people she's an arsonist posing as a firefighter. I mean, what she did, she was the number one advocate for keeping these schools closed. And now that every study has found that there was significant damage done, and actually there was no difference in terms of uh, how COVID was spreading amongst those schools, she's now asking for forgiveness from the public, which we shouldn't allow. She shut down our schools. She cost kids their mental health, their uh, suicide rates increased significantly. And these were kids that should have never been, they would never have been damaged by COVID. And Randy Weingarten made sure that they were subject to her agenda. So no, I don't think anybody should be forgiving Randy Weingarten and the teachers unions for what they've done. I think they should be remembering it. And I think that they should be holding them accountable to it. As part of that, do you see a, a surge in parents who are doing homeschooling, putting their children in charter schools, cyber charter schools, things of that sort? We've seen free reactions from three different sets of people. One, we've seen parents start to vote. They've started to vote for candidates that are going to advocate for school choice. We've seen them vote for candidates that are not tools of the teachers' unions. That's happening from the school board all the way up to uh, congressional races this last election. And then we see kids going out of schools, going out of public schools in the millions, in absolute droves. We've seen more kids uh, leave public schools than we have in a very long time in America, and they're going to charter schools where they can. They're going to private schools where their parents can afford it. They're doing homeschooling where their parents can do that. They're doing uh, learning parts. We've seen these crop up all over America. So that's a great response to be able to get the kids in education that uh, they actually deserve and put the parents in control of. And then lastly, we've seen teachers opt out of their unions in droves. And what I mean by that is teachers in America, most of them pay around $1,100 a year in union dues to support Randy Weingarten and the teachers' union's radical agenda. We've seen more teachers opt out of their unions across America than ever before in the last couple of years. What sort of public policy changes do you see as necessary here, Aaron, to prevent something like this from happening to us again in the future? I think that, one, what we need to do is we need to call a new Congress to investigate the teachers' unions and their role 
in shutting down schools. The Freedom Foundation is advocating for this. We're looking for that as we enter a new Congress. We want to see them held accountable. We want to see them answer to what they did back then. And we really want to see the power that they have over uh, states, over cities, and the Biden administration. I mean, we know that there's no smoke without fire, and we certainly saw that uh, the teachers' union certainly calling the shots. But I want to see them held accountable to this. Only then can we guarantee that this never happens again to some special interest group in America. Aaron With is chief executive officer of Freedom Foundation. Aaron, tell us a bit about Freedom Foundation. Also, where can folks go to learn more about this issue on the web? Freedom Foundation exists to hold government unions accountable and help free as many public employees in America from unions as possible. Find out about the Freedom Foundation. Go to freedomfoundation.com. You can sign up to all of our social media, subscribe to our weekly emails. And then if you're a public employee listing, go to optouttoday.com to learn about your rights when it comes to union membership. Aaron With of the Freedom Foundation. Aaron, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you for having me on. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. He's been sifting through all the U.S. Senate, U.S. House races. We still have an unclear picture in many ways, but some parts of it are coming into focus. Scott, good to have you here. Well, it's great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. Let's start out with the United States Senate. We entered Election Day last Tuesday, Scott, 50-50. Right now, we're really not sure where we're going to end up. Yeah, well, there's this big race in Georgia with Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Neither one of them hit 50%. So we're headed to a runoff in a few weeks down in Georgia, and control of the Senate could lie there. Obviously, there's a couple other races that are ballots are still being counted out west. We know that they're really close, but we also know that this big race is going to happen in Georgia. And if anybody's a political activist or if you've got friends and family, make sure you call down there and see how you can be helpful. We know that Herschel Walker is a strong candidate. He's loved by the people of Georgia for his Heisman Trophy and, and all the entrepreneurial things that he's been doing down in the state. But Raphael Warnock is well-funded by the radical left, and that's going to be a, what I would consider a dogfight. You head a little bit farther south, and when you think about what's the big story coming out of election night, I, I think Florida is right at the top of it. When you look at the rest of the country, we didn't really have the gains that I think a lot of people were hoping for with a red wave. This was sort of a red ripple. We win the House of Representatives. But down in Florida, Ron DeSantis won his reelection with 59.4% of the vote. And the interesting thing about that is in 2018, he only won by about 33,000 votes. And on Tuesday night, he won by 1.5 million votes. And the difference there is basically Florida has been, underneath Ron DeSantis's leadership, a beacon of freedom and liberty and economic prosperity. There are people all over America that are fleeing the socialism and radicalism and wokeism in their communities for a freedom-loving state like the state of Florida. And I think that that's hallmark of the election in terms of who, who came out. And, you know, obviously he's had strong leadership through devastating hurricanes, and he's taken on Disney and wokeism and corporations. He's kept schools and businesses open during the coronavirus pandemic. And I just think it's such an exciting thing for his leadership to, to be reelected. In the House down there, we got four seats. We picked up 
through redistricting, and and that's a big testament to DeSantis's leadership with the state legislature. They did not want to pass those maps originally, and he pushed it through. So we're going to get a rock-solid conservative with Anna Paulina Luna down in Florida 13. She's going to be in the Freedom Caucus, and she's going to be just really one of the shining stars of this new freshman class. I'm really excited about that. Moving past the United States Senate here, in which we're still waiting for numbers to be tabulated in a number of states, we have the Georgia runoff, so that remains rather murky. As you mentioned, in the U.S. House of Representatives, is it clear yet that Republicans will have a majority? I think it is, and that majority is just not going to be 25 seats that a lot of people hoped for. And nobody hoped for a 25-seat majority more than Kevin McCarthy, but hope does not get you election wins. You've got to have a strong message at the top. And honestly, leadership in the House of Representatives failed to articulate a similar message that Ron DeSantis had down in Florida. And so right now there's a big question here in Washington, D.C., and the question is, does Kevin McCarthy have the votes to become Speaker of the House of Representatives? There's going to be a lot of folks that are upset about some of their incumbent buddies that lost, and there's also going to be folks that are like, hey, You didn't really invest in the conservative races the same way that you did in a lot of these moderate races, because you predicted that these moderates were going to vote for you for speaker. But guess what? They lost, too. And so when you've got all these conservatives looking at each other and thinking that they were going to be getting people like Jim Bogna in Pennsylvania in, getting other conservatives like J.R. Majewski and Sandy Smith, and the list goes on and on and on. Bo Hines down in North Carolina. These folks lost. And the leadership failed to adequately invest in those races. So I think that during the speaker's race, it's going to be a real, real question. Can Kevin McCarthy get the conservative right to rally behind him in order to become the speaker? So conservatives right now are trying to figure out, okay, do we want reforms to the rules of the House so that we've got more leverage in legislation, right? We haven't had what's known as an open rule in the House of Representatives since 2016. And what that means is there's been zero opportunities for members of Congress to amend legislation on the House floor. Zero times in six years. So that's totally unacceptable. Most people don't even know how to offer an amendment. The House is more than halfway turned over since 2016. So we need to restore the rules of the House of Representatives back to the way it operated closer to 2014. And we also need to get these commitments that conservatives aren't going to be blocked out and that Kevin McCarthy and whoever else is in the leadership isn't going to flock over to Nancy Pelosi or Hakeem Jeffries for votes from Democrats. Given the fact that the Republican majority in the House is likely going to be very slim, and of course Nancy Pelosi has been Speaker the last several years, and they've had a slim majority, does that narrow majority really empower the Freedom Caucus more than if there was a large majority? Definitely. And when I think about Andy Biggs and Scott Perry and Jim Jordan and folks like that holding the line against the Biden agenda, it gives me a lot of confidence that this new House Republican majority can actually build out a message and a mandate for 2024. But if they disregard the conservatives in the House of Representatives and they say, well, we're going to work with Joe Biden to pass the debt limit and we're going to work with Joe Biden to do the Farm Bill and the National Defense Authorization Act, then we're going to get the same results in 2024 because we're not leading with bold leadership. 
we, of course, are going to keep an eye on what continues to be a developing scenario in the United States Senate with Scott Parkinson, who, of course, is at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a few words about the club, please. Club for Growth is a membership organization. If anybody wants to check us out, you can do so on our website, clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we're going to have many interesting conversations over the next few weeks. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. A proposed state constitutional amendment to impose a millionaire's tax has been approved by voters in Massachusetts. Eric Bame of Reason Magazine discusses what happened and the potential impact. Teachers unions in Massachusetts spent big bucks trying to convince voters to approve a massive tax hike, and it looks like they were successful. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bame with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. No guest for me this week. Instead, I'm taking a look at one of the honestly quite small, probably relatively insignificant outcomes of Election Day, but it's one that I think tells you something, even if you don't live in Massachusetts, even if this new tax won't apply to you. It's it's something that shows, I think, demonstrates the motivations of teachers unions, which which by and large was overwhelmingly the group that was pushing for this new millionaire's tax in Massachusetts. And so let's take a closer look at exactly what went on there. Voters in the Bay State were asked on Tuesday on Election Day whether they wanted to impose a new 4% quote unquote fair share tax on incomes in excess of $1 million in Massachusetts. Now, Massachusetts has a flat income tax, a 5% flat income tax that basically all Massachusetts residents pay. There's a very small amount of income that is exempted from it, but it's almost uh, exactly a flat tax across the board. This new millionaire's tax is a constitutional amendment that uh, has some pretty deep-pocketed supporters in the state. The Boston Globe reported a couple of weeks ago that teachers unions had spent over $22 million backing this initiative. And that accounts for about 85% of the $26 million that was spent trying to convince voters to support the millionaire's tax. And it dwarfs the $13 million that was spent by a variety of groups and individuals that oppose the tax increase. So the teachers' unions are literally outspending the millionaires in Massachusetts. The union's efforts are also kind of misleading. My fellow Reason contributor and the managing editor at Education Next, a education-focused political reporting organization, this is Iris Stoll, he noted that one mailer that the teachers' union sent out incorrectly highlighted the fact that uh, many Massachusetts residents were already getting $1 million for free, which of course ignores the fact that the income was earned, not just given for free, and it's already subject to a 5% tax. That $1 million is not free. But look, it's not much of a surprise that teachers unions are pushing the tax hike. This has actually been a major priority for teachers unions in Massachusetts for years. This year's ballot question is actually the culmination of a campaign that the Massachusetts Teachers Association launched all the way back in 2015. The Boston Globe reported that the MTA had coughed up some $13.3 million to back the fair share amendment, and the National Education Association, a national teachers union, has also dumped in more than $7 million to the campaign. The Boston Globe's piece on this finished by asking the question, what exactly do the teachers want? But I think the better question to ask is whether there's anyone else who actually wanted this tax hike to pass. Because sure, a tax on millionaires 
means more money for the state to dole out. There's lots of people that might be in favor of that. But actually, it doesn't raise as much money as you might think. A study from Tufts University said that the new tax would apply to less than 1% of the state's residents, and it would generate only about $1.3 billion in additional revenue. Now, that's a lot of money, of course. I don't want to laugh at $1.3 billion, but honestly, it's not that much in the context of a $52 billion annual budget, which is what Massachusetts had this year. On the other hand, the Tufts report noted that the downsides of this tax could be pretty significant for Massachusetts. Some high-income residents may relocate to other states, the Tufts researchers found, adding that tax avoidance could be widespread. And a different report from the Beacon Hill Institute, which is a free market nonprofit, estimated that the millionaire's tax would generate about $1.2 billion in new taxes, but would cost the state more than 9,000 jobs and reduce the state's overall gross output and real disposable income. All of that, of course, is the result of wealthy residents moving their assets and investments elsewhere taking their money and leaving Massachusetts. It's not that hard to do. It's a small state, right? You just hop right across the border. So why are the teachers unions so heavily invested in backing a policy that could cost thousands of jobs and won't really generate that much more money for schools? And I think the answer is something that shows you why this whole thing happened. And and I think the reason is that they've got some bigger plans down the road because Massachusetts, as I mentioned at the top of this, is one of just a handful of states that has a flat income tax, 5% income tax, everybody pays the same rate. That's a policy that has a lot of benefits. Flat income taxes make it easier for taxpayers to know exactly what they owe the government. It means that everybody is sort of bought in, everybody's got skin in the game, right? And it means that everybody's paying an equal amount. If you earn more money, you pay more, of course, but the rate is the same. Disrupting that system, disrupting the flat tax system, with a new tax on millionaires, creates a mechanism for future tax increases. It carves off a small group of people and says, well, those people are so wealthy that they deserve to be taxed more heavily. They should pay their fair share, which is the line that, of course, we hear over and over again. This is a fair share tax. That's how it was framed in all of the uh, lead up to the election. But of course, a fair share is just in the eye of the beholder. And in this case, it's ultimately up to the voters of Massachusetts, who seem to have gone along with what the unions wanted. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. By the time you hear me, the results may have changed, but it looks like this initiative has passed. Latest data that I have here shows that about uh, 1.2 million voters in Massachusetts voted yes on the new 4% millionaires tax. It's about 52% of the electorate. 95% of the votes are in at the moment. So uh, that's a 4% lead probably going to hold. Looks like Massachusetts will have a new 4% tax on income over $1 million. It means that in some small way, the flat tax in Massachusetts has been eliminated, and it means that uh, carving off a special group of people that deserve to be taxed more heavily seems to have worked. The teachers unions got their way in Massachusetts, and I think what happened there provides something of a roadmap for how Similar groups, maybe even the same groups, will go about attacking similar tax policies in other states. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. You can check out more of our coverage of the election and everything else going on around the country at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Concerns are growing that Vladimir Putin may resort to using nuclear weapons in the Ukraine. This is not the first time the world has been threatened with nuclear war by Russia. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College 
gives us a history lesson on this American Radio Journal commentary. It is ironic and scary that 60 years after the Cuban Missile Crisis that brought the world's two superpowers to the brink of nuclear Armageddon, President Joe Biden is warning a possible nuclear Armageddon, quote-unquote, and once again with Russia. Personally, I think Biden's warnings are apt. I believe the potential for a desperate Vladimir Putin to escalate to the level of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine is frighteningly real. A Putin whose army is defeated on the battlefield is an especially dangerous Putin who may well resort to something catastrophic, as we feared in October 1962. The situation back then, 60 years ago, was dire. John F. Kennedy faced a grim scenario that looked like it might spiral out of control. Americans were terrified. They dashed to grocery stores to buy up all canned food and supplies, and many of them literally started digging bomb shelters in their backyards. The nightmare scenario terrified all of humanity, from Washington to Moscow to every capital. But there were, however, two extraordinary exceptions. There were two lunatics who welcomed Armageddon from ground zero in Cuba. They were Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. Quote, if the nuclear missiles had remained, we would have fired them against the heart of the U.S., including New York City, unquote. Che gleefully admitted in November 1962 to Sam Russell of Britain's Daily Worker. He said, the victory of socialism is well worth millions of atomic victims, unquote. Che Guevara was an unhinged zealot who described himself as bloodthirsty. And Fidel Castro, he was no better. In fact, Fidel actually recommended to Soviet General Secretary Nikita Khrushchev that they together launch an all-out nuclear attack upon the United States. This is no secret. Castro openly admitted it. Robert McNamara, President John F. Kennedy's Secretary of Defense during the Cuban Missile Crisis, was taken aback by Castro's candor when the two men publicly discussed the Cuban Missile Crisis 30 years later in an open forum in Havana. Fidel told McNamara flatly, quote, Bob, I did recommend that the nuclear missiles were to be used, unquote. In total, said McNamara, there were 162 Soviet missiles on the island. The firing of those missiles alone would have led, according to McNamara, to at least 80 million dead Americans. And that's aside from casualties. That, however, is a mere conservative estimate, given that 162 missiles were far from the sum total that would have been subsequently launched. The U.S., in turn, would have launched on Cuba and also on the USSR. President Kennedy made that commitment clear in his nationally televised speech on October 22nd, saying, quote, it shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union, unquote. That's what Kennedy said. Now, in response, of course, the Soviets, in turn, would have launched on America. And then the fireworks would still just be starting. Under the terms of their NATO and Warsaw Pact charters, the territories of Western and Eastern European countries would also start firing. Once the smoke cleared, hundreds of millions to possibly over a billion people could have perished. That is, if Fidel and Che had their way. When he learned of his Cuban pal's fanaticism, Nikita Khrushchev acted without hesitation to get the nukes away from these madmen. He met with top officials in the code room of the Soviet foreign ministry very late on a Sunday night and ordered them repeatedly, remove them, 
remove the missiles as quickly as possible. Thankfully, the world averted nuclear war through the steady leadership of President Kennedy and thanks to Nikita Khrushchev removing the Soviet missiles. And with no thanks to Fidel and Che, who today are cult heroes to many young Americans who don't know the truth about them. And so, in the fall of 1962, nuclear Armageddon was averted. In the fall of 2022, we pray that any use of nuclear weapons by Moscow will again be averted. Sixty years ago, it took the skill and resolve of key statesmen to pull the world back from the precipice. Do we have such men with such abilities in those posts in Moscow and Washington today? We shall find out. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KLUA-FM in Kona, Hawaii, KWJZ-FM in Snohomish, Washington, along with WMCRAM in Syracuse, New York. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the cost of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.